You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, I appreciate you being here. This is about sibling rivalry and divine providence. I noticed on the list of the Sunday school classes there are a lot of good ones on there, and I almost canceled mine just so I could go and sit in on a couple of them myself. Uh, But this is a uh, a theme that I shared with Gil probably, I don't know, back in September or something like that. He said, do you have anything you'd like to do? And this is something I've been thinking about and talking about for years and have lived myself being a sibling, the middle of three boys. Uh, so uh, I introduced the idea to him and he said, well, sure, why don't you do this? And so for well, four weeks now, what I'm going to talk about are sibling rivalries and divine providence, not just the fact that we have brothers in fact, as you well know, and I'll talk about this morning, the first set of brothers, they ended up in homicide. Uh, but that, that God teaches through these kinds of lessons and the significance of the family, I think, is going to be found in the kind of lessons that God teaches through these very intense sibling rivalries that's found in Scripture. But before we start, let's open up with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, in whom we live, move, and have our being, We ask, O Lord, that Thou will make our minds sharp, our hearts tender, and our wills strong, so that we may be responsive to Thy will. And this I pray. Amen. Well, I want to start at the beginning, and that is in Genesis, where it talks about the family. I'm going to look at just portions of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll move into Genesis chapter 4, where it talks about the first set of siblings, and that's Cain and Abel, and why things went so poorly and badly and horribly between the two brothers there. But in some ways, though, it starts all the way back into the garden. Now, I'm probably not telling you anything new, but uh, there are two accounts of the creation of humanity in the Genesis record of creation. There is Genesis 1, and Genesis 2, and sort of a different take, not contradictory. I don't think they're two different stories. It's one story told in two different ways, and we need to see that. And there's great profound, I think, insight in realizing that who we are, made by God, really has two sides to it, that we're, in a way, one person with two sort of motives and drives to us. In Genesis chapter 1, I'll start with verse 26, it says, Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So, God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. You notice male and female are created simultaneously together, bearing the image of God, and they're giving a twofold task. One, they are to have dominion. Now, it's a fuzzy word. It can be interpreted in different ways. But what it does mean, definitely, in all the ideas we can think about, is that you've got a task to do. You've got a job to do. So we're created to be active productive, intentional, we have a job to do, and God has created us to do that. Secondly, we are, as he says, to multiply. We're to have children. God created humanity for the future. No generation is the terminal generation. Every generation is responsible for the future. We are to multiply. We have a job to do. So the 
record here in Genesis chapter 1 is that human nature is designed to, in a sense, have power. And the reason for that is to be productive. We have to bring order to the world. We have to bring out the goodness in creation. We are to have children. We are creating a society in which we can welcome children in, bring in in the future in our task here. And so here in Genesis 1, we're intelligent, we're motivated, we're ambitious, we're productive. Notice, though, in Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 7. Then God said, I mean, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We're made of dust. We're fragile. We're made of things that can be blown around by the wind. God forms us out of this very fragile material and breathes into us and we become living souls. Verse 15. And then God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. We have a job. We're gardeners. We already have a task there lying in front of us and we're to take care of God's garden. We're caregivers then. Then in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone and will make him a helper as his partner. We are alone. We're lonely. Uh, just as an aside, much of what I'm sharing with you today and the rest of the three other Sundays at this, I've, I've gotten from my own study and my own experience, but in particular, two books that I've read a number of years ago. I wish I'd read them years and years ago. And one of them was called The Lonely Man of Faith by a rabbi named Joseph Slovichik. And the other one is Essays and Ethics by well, another rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. Slovichik is from Boston. He is dead. And Jonathan Sachs is a retired chief rabbi of Great Britain. I've read these books. They're magnificent writers, by the way. Very profoundly you know, insightful commentators on, on, on the Torah in particular. And the way they looked at the family has shaped much of what I'm going to try to share with you. And Slovichevich talks about this person here in Genesis chapter 2. We're lonely, the lonely man of faith. We're made of dust and breath. And we can't do it on our own. In fact, God has to make us a helper. I have to have a helper. I am not so autonomous and independent that I can stand strong and purposes just on my own. Someone is going to have to assist me. And if you know this story, who were the first helpers? The animals were. They're our first helpers, our partners, the one we find ourselves in because we cannot find security in ourselves. So we have to relate meaningfully to animals. And you know what Adam does here, the first one? He talks to them. It's, by the way, it's good to talk to animals on, on occasion, I think. Adam talks to them, gives them names, relates to them because he has to. He's lonely. This, this is parenthetical, but... And, and I mean this in a way just figuratively, but I have a, a point to be made on this. I think when Adam is there and, you know, animals start walking by, and let's say a dog walks by, he does not say canine. That's not a name. That's a taxonomy. We had a dog died a year and a half ago, and we're still grieving the process. You know that goes. And her name was Kara, and she was not just a dog. She was someone that we needed as a helper to be our partner. I think Adam gave personal names to these animals. We are built to be on intimate terms with animals. But God looked at Adam and knew that wasn't enough. He was still needy, still fragile. And then what we see in verse 20. 
And the man gave names to the animals, uh, the cattle, and then, and there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The one who is called woman for Adam man, this one was taken. Adam has to suffer. He's got to give of himself. He's got to sacrifice something very, very important to him. The rib, that which protects the vital organs, in order to find intimacy with somebody else. He has to surrender part of his own security, his own strength, so that he can fulfill his task as being made by God. And so Adam and Eve were brought here together, bone of my bone, my flesh of my flesh. God makes us vulnerable. I am not a semi-god. You're not a titan. I am made of dust and breath, and I'm lonely, and I talk to animals, and I've got to have someone for a bone of my bone. Why does God make us vulnerable like this? So fragile. So that we can form relationships. Not just acquaintances, but intimacy. God wants intimacy among us, but also towards God. We're fragile so that we need others and need God. Now, look at this. Here's Adam 1, so to speak. Powerful, intelligent, designing, controlling, planning, so that he can and she can produce in the world. Here's the other one, Adam and Eve. Vulnerable, fragile, needing, wanting, desirous of things, so that there can be secure and meaningful relationship. Here's my point. It's not an either or. We are both. We are both of those. We are designed to be both. I'm Adam 1, I'm Adam 2. I've got a job to do, but I'm needy. I want to subdue and dominate, but I also want to be vulnerable and fragile and open and needy because I have to have relationships as well. We're not semi-gods, nor are we just um, utterly worthless animals in this creation. We're both. We're, We're made by God, bearing God's image, but we need God and we need others as well. And so, our human nature is complex. We're ambiguous. And if one dominates over the other, it usually causes problems. And that's what we see in the, the temptation. Now, this is my take on this. I'm well aware that other people have different interpretations on this. But in the temptation, there in chapter 3 of Genesis, you know, the serpent comes to Eve, and Eve passes the temptation down to Adam, and the serpent appeals to Eve's sense of sight, sense of feeling, but most of all, what the serpent does to Eve is to say, and you can become like God. And she couldn't turn that down. You can gain ultimate control over your own life. You can be your own deity. You can be the mistress or mistress of your own life. And she cannot withstand that. Adam also hears that and takes of the forbidden fruit. And then when God finds out, and by the way, you know what the first question in the Bible is? Where are you? God's always asking that. Where are you? Where you been? Why are you hiding? Why are you ashamed? Where are you? And so God looks for them. And here, Adam and Eve, knowing that they have not just disobeyed the command of eating the forbidden fruit, they have fractured their being. 
Now think about it. When, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by saying, you shall become like God, to which Adam, which part of us, was the serpent giving that temptation? Adam one. And who suffers the most? Adam two. When we play like God, we harm ourselves, we harm our relationships, we harm our relationship with God. The Adam two is suffering the consequences of Adam one forgetting that he was designed to be intimate with God and others, not to be anyone else's Lord, especially not one's own Lord. Now, at the end of chapter 3, there are what are called the curses. I'm going to spend a little time talking about those, the curses. Uh, God curses the serpent, but I'm going to move over to that one, and I want to go right to the woman here. This is chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's a twofold curse. One, pain in childbirth. Now I've witnessed two childbirths, and with the help of modern medicine, my wife made it through okay. Now, was she denying the curse by taking that medicine to help her get through it? I don't think that's it. My hunch is this. Again, there can be others. People have come up with very credible interpretation of this. But I don't think this is a reference to the physical pain of having childbirth. I don't think that's it. I don't think all of a sudden God made it physically a lot more difficult for women to have children prior to that. So what is the pain in childbirth? What is it? Why is that a curse, a punishment for rebelling against the command of God? Why is that? Yes, Ellis. So I think it's a punishment against Eve 1 to bring out Eve 2. Because he curses man's work and he curses woman's childbearing. And just in our marriage, I was Adam 1 in work and Debbie was Eve 1 in childbearing. And God says, hold on, Ellis. <laughs> you know, you will come to the end of being Adam 1 in your work. And Debbie, you'll come to the end of Eve 1 in your children. And so his curse is actually a blessing because once you realize, wow, I have put work above God, um, I mean, that was my experience. That's my yeah. anyway. Well, so I think he's trying to break us out of that and turn us into the, you know, allow Adam to allow a right. horrible person right. to come out and say, help Jesus. I think a little differently. I agree. I think that's, but I, for me as a mother, I think it's, um, I can only imagine how disappointed and heartbroken God must have felt when she kind of disobeyed and did something so hurtful. And as a mother, when you have these relationships with these children that are, you know, a portion of yourself, they're, you know, your DNA. And then when you see them fail and you see them disrespect and that kind of thing, you, you bear that, you know, and, and that is Really right, right. Really and indeed, Eve will see that yes. with her children. Exactly. That she will come to realize that by her birth, and it is, I, I, no mystery to this, children come from women, the womb of a woman, not from the man, even though we contribute to that process. But there's a level of familiarity and intimacy that a woman has in birth. And one day she'll realize that uh, the trouble she has brought into the world and that's a hard thing for a parent to come to realize, isn't it? 
has now become real in my own children, that my problems have become tangible in the life of my child. And that's what she realizes. And I, I mean, as a parent, and you know this, is there any greater pain to realize that I've done something that has harmed my child? Not just peripherally. Now, the second part of that curse, I have never heard at any wedding ceremony. I'm joking. Uh, I've, I've often told people, if you want me to be a, the minister in your wedding, I'm going to mention this. Are you willing to allow your husband to rule over you because that's your curse that you must affirm? Of course not. Nobody wants that. It's a curse. But here, she is cursed to have her husband rule over her. And she desires it. What can we make out of that? Of course, a lot of mischief and harm can be done with that idea that entitles a man to, you know, not just sort of dominate, but harm his wife. That, that obviously can't be. It's not that simple, by the way. I don't think it's that simple. I think the curse that is given to her there is that she will never find fulfillment just in her husband. She'll always be subservient, not just to his whim and wish, but to the idea that my marriage now is my end all. No marriage is an end all. No marriage can be God. Not, it's not only that I cannot be my own God, my marriage cannot be my God. I cannot think this will answer all my quests, all my desires, all my, my needs in life. And so the idea of being bonded to her husband will always make her aware that there is so much more in, in life than just being the wife of this man. All right, now let's look at the curse of Adam here. And to the man he said, Because ye have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you were dust, and to dust you shall return. This too is a twofold curse. The first is that he will realize that the earth is cursed by what he did. This sort of introduces the distinction here between guilt and shame. Guilt is when I have done an offense for which I can rectify the offense. I can pay the fine, have the punishment, and the offense is erased. That's guilt. I break a window, I fix it. I run a red light, I get a ticket, I pay it. I do something and... You know, I, I do what the court tells me to do, or I offend you and I say I'm sorry and you accept it. That's guilt. Shame, though, is what results from guilt that cannot be taken away. That cannot be taken away by anything that I do. Adam did something which he could not rectify. He could not make right. Adam's rebellion against God has scarred, marred, limited, harmed all of creation. It's always a reminder now when we look at history, when we realize the tremendous harm and dispolation and meanness and malice and envy and cruelty that has been brought into human history, it is a reminder to me that that's my shame. I may not be guilty for what they have done. I may not be the cause of what they've done. But I am part of something that has brought this tremendous tragedy within human history and that's part of my responsibility, though I cannot fix it. I have to live with the shame of that. And that is an incredibly onerous thing to live with. Make me guilty, not shameful. Because I can solve my guilt, but I can't solve my shame. And so God puts this on Adam. He now bears a burden he can never fix. 
Then it says he's going to sweat by his brow all his days. He's going to work and never be satisfied. He will never complete what he thinks he must do to find his worth and success. Now let's think about this. Who can stand under these curses? What marriage can endure such restrictions, such limitations, such such woundedness as this? Who can withstand these kinds of curses? It would break us. It really would. And it would so enable us to form the kind of marriage that God will have in mind that it's, it's in some ways difficult that to realize that marriage has continued in light of our failures as human beings here. But that's exactly what happens. God keeps Adam and Eve together even though they're cursed. And I ask the question, why? Why would God want to keep marriage intact? The bond of husband and wife. And as we'll find out throughout all the Scripture, in fact, the end of chapter 2 is that it, it says, there, and for this reason a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That verse is repeated throughout all of Scripture. Even Jesus Himself says that what God has brought together, God brings people together, male and female into family. Let no one put asunder. Why would God bring together two individuals who are so cursed. Why? You could think, just hypothetically, that after this, God said, well, I give up on them. You know, if they want to do something of their own, their own. But God does not. God does not give up. So, that is the reason why I'm offering this series. What lessons of providence, what can we learn about what God wants from us by looking at what happens in the family, what lessons of providence can we learn from these sibling rivalries? Well, as you know, God expels them out of the Garden of Eden, locks up the gate, puts angels there with swords. Nobody can get back in. There is no more innocence to find in life. Uh, that's a hard lesson to learn even at 68 years of age. I keep thinking, well, maybe this will happen and I'll be innocent. Or maybe if I get involved with these people, I won't have any more problems. Well, wrong. That gate is locked. I can't get back into innocence. There is no more Eden for us to crawl back into. it. And it's not only a myth to think so, it is a harmful story to sort of tell people you can find innocence someplace in your life. We're east of Eden. And so Adam and Eve are east of Eden in the land of curse, so to speak, and they keep together and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we find the first tragedy after the curse here with the relationship between Cain and Abel. I'll start with chapter 4, verse 2. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat proportions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance <coughs> fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Second question in the Bible. Why are we angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is 
lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, I've read, and you probably have too, various commentaries about why God preferred Abel's um, animal sacrifice and rejected Cain's grain sacrifice. And, I'll be honest, I've never really been thoroughly convinced of any of the explanations I've heard about that one. What's so much more important about a fatling than grain? Um, when grain offering actually is a legitimate offering in the Old Testament. I don't know. I really don't. But maybe that's part of what the lesson is. Within sibling rivalry, within the relationship between brothers, sisters, brothers, sisters, sometimes we don't know why we're not favored. You know that feeling? I really am not for sure why I am not the blessed one. I've worked hard just like Cain. I'm up at sunrise. I plow the field. I pull the weeds. I harvest the grain. I do everything right. What my parents asked me to do is what I do. I make straight A's at school. Yeah, yeah, you know that. I work hard to find approval, acceptance, to be recognized as a person of worth, but there's something in me that says I'm not the one. I'm not the blessed one. It's somebody else. Now we find out more about the inner life of Cain than we do Abel here. Abel might have been struggling himself, but we do know the deep struggles that Cain had. He not only was jealous that Abel was the favored one by God, he felt anger. And God says, now watch, watch out. If you let that anger go, it becomes a sin. Now, anger in of itself is understandable when we feel rejected or unaccepted or unworthy. It emotionally is a way in which I think we try to maybe buttress our inner life or defend ourselves. That sense of, this is not right, I don't like this, I wish it were not that way. That's a legitimate feeling. But God said, be careful about that. That can turn into sin. It's like in uh, teachings of the seven deadly sins, your wrath is a deadly sin. And wrath in Latin is the word ira. And the word ira, like irate, is a little more of an acute, poignant word than the word just being angry. If you say, well, look, I'm angry at you, Dennis. Well, okay. If you say, I am irate, I'm backing off. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to defend myself. Irateness has a sense of just out-of-control destructiveness. God cautions Cain about this. It's natural for us to feel anger by not realizing we're the blessed one, we're the accepted one. It's natural when we feel jealousy to feel anger. But we have to be careful. And what Cain does is that he's not. He feeds on his anger. And then as we see here, he kills his brother Cain. Verse 8. And Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a good question. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I accountable to one, even one for whom I feel jealousy? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed 
from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it will no longer yield you the strength, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. And then as the rest of the story go, God puts a mark on Cain on his forehead so that anyone who sees him will know that he is not only a wanderer and a fugitive, he's also a murderer, but they won't murder him. Interesting, was that an act of grace or an act of punishment to give him the mark of Cain? What do you think? It may be a punishment for him to wander all his life and know that wherever he goes, people will know he has committed fratricide, the killing of his brother. That there's no way that he can hide from this. There's no sort of subterfuge or cloak or cover that he can put over himself. That wherever he goes, people will know, you killed your brother. You are a murderer. You've committed homicide. And so his punishment, it's almost like um, Oedipus Rex. Remember in the great story, Oedipus Rex? When Oedipus finally realizes that he was the one who killed his father, married his mother, and the father of his sisters. What does he do, remember, in Oedipus Rex? Great, great story. Uh, Outside of Scripture, I consider that one of the most profound stories about human nature. He plucks his eyes out. Because death is too quick, too easy a way out. He has to suffer. Cain has to suffer to realize what harm he has brought into the world. His suffering is not just just punishment. It is a purging of his soul. It is a way of him realizing what harm he has brought into the world. Okay, it is an unbelievably tragic story. It's played out all the time. Not that siblings necessarily kill each other. But there is a jealousy that exists. And the point that I was trying to make here, that jealousy sometimes is undefined. It's not like, who was it, Cinderella? You know, am I, do I have that one right? I mean, she was a, the, the disfavored one and she knew that all the others were really being favored. My, my parents, I'm probably going to tell you more than you want to hear, but, but my parents treated us fairly. I always felt that they were going to do the right thing. I have no real major complaints about my parents. I really don't. But I, I, being the middle, if you know what that means, uh, I always kind of felt they were sort of favoring the older or the younger. And so I worked hard and did everything right. But I always sort of carried that. Objectively, there is no fact to it. And right now, my mom and dad are probably thinking, you idiot, what are you talking about? We didn't favor Dan or Terry over you. But I had that feeling. There's no reason sometimes for our sibling rivalry. And it doesn't have to be. I think as a result of the curse that was given to our parents, of which we have inherited from Adam and Eve, that sense now of being a wanderer as a result of being displaced from earth. I as a man feel displaced from earth. That it is this sort of strange realm out there that was a reflection of my own failure that I cannot correct. 
And so deep within my kind of psyche, I had this idea that no matter how hard I work, you know this feeling, how much I try to say, I am a person of worth, I am a person of great value, just like the curse that was given to Adam, it will be toil on my forehead. You cannot make yourself uh, faultless. You cannot make yourself blameless. You cannot make yourself so pure that God has to accept you. It's impossible. And I try it, though. I try it. And even at my age, I'm still stricken with this. I was hoping when I was 38, I'd get over it. <laughs> when I was 48, I'd get over it. And I thought at last when I'm 68, peace will come into my life. No, that's what it means to be east of Eden. We will struggle with this. And some of you who are older than me, that, that the two or three in here who are older than me, may be struggling with it in your own way. But we always struggle with this. And this is a fact that exists within our intimate relationships of the family. No matter how hard we feel, Eve will feel cursed by what she, I mean, no matter how hard Eve will work, she will feel that she's passed her curse on. No matter how hard Adam works, he will always be disjointed, disconnected from the fruit of his labor. And so Cain kills Abel. All right, what can we learn from this? What's the lesson I think God's trying to teach us? I think two things. One, when when Adam says, "Am my brother's, am I my brother's keeper?" The obvious answer is yes. God kept the family together knowing that it was bearing a curse. And just parenthetically, I knew this to be true when I got married and I advise, you know, I teach at Sanford and every now and then I do wedding and marriage counseling and so on or just generally talking to students. I say, you know, marriage does not solve your problems. It accentuates your problems. It will bring out in you what you've not really solved in your own soul. It will, won't it? Most people are kind of surprised because we have this Camelot marriage, this Camelot view of marriage. Oh, it's all going to be great. You know, music and cocker spaniels and every, no no real problems. And, you know, I mean, I'm digressing here, but I don't know if you did this in your wedding, but uh, we did. Uh, you know, the traditional vows? Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife for Sickness and health, richer and poor, better and worse. You know, and is that a Camelot experience? <laughs> is that some sort of romper room joy and delight to have? No, that is serious. I mean, that's you, we ought to be shaking our boots or high heels or whatever you wear at your wedding. You ought to be shaking when that when what is being asked of me that I'm going to be faithful through those demands of me. God puts us in such an intense, to, to mix my metaphor here, lab experiment. A relationship that frankly, because we bear the consequences of Adam and Eve in our lives, we are brought together in this kind of, of intimate, powerful, intense relationship for a reason. And one of those reasons is that, yes, I am my brother's keeper. Marriage teaches us to be accountable to one another. Marriage gives us the opportunity to learn just how important it is that I am my brother's keeper. That I have a command by God to be 
accountable to other people. Marriage, even though it is intense, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's, it's not meant for the light of heart, uh, nonetheless is that relationship where we learn just how important it is to be accountable to one another. So I am my brother's keeper. I'm my wife's keeper. I am my son's keeper. I'm my grandchildren's keeper. And in a way, because I learned just how important that is, I'm your keeper as well. You're not just a stranger to me, as my children are not strangers. My wife is not a stranger. They are my brothers, so to speak, to which I am held responsible to be accountable to them. Marriage is this, like I said, a lab experiment. An intense organization that God has kept intact so that we can learn a lesson we probably would not learn if we did not have that kind of relationship. Because, I mean, think about it. In a land of strangers, where we are just merely acquainted with people, will you really develop the virtue of being your brother's keeper? Will you really want to be sacrificial to help others? Marriage is that environment in which we learn that. There's something else here. And I'll say this and I need to quit them. The second lesson I think we see here in the first sibling rivalry is that it's incumbent upon parents to be able to find ways to affirm the worth of their children. To be able to convince your child that come what may, no matter what may happen, even if you feel disfavored by God, I will find some way or another to affirm your worth that you are not only a person of dignity in my life, you are one for whom I am glad that you're in my life. This is the responsibility, and I would say, well, next, ultimately, you know, as a, as a faithful representative of God to the family, the, the greatest responsibility of being a parent to a child. I've, I've heard stories uh, you know, people of great accomplishments, uh, people of stature. Uh, and I, I've been personally with them. I've seen them speak in public where they, for some reason or another, will reveal that they never felt truly accepted by one of their parents. Never did. And it was a knife in their heart. They couldn't get over it. And these were people of, of repute of some real you know, importance. I mean, they have done great things, but that's always part of their shadow and whatever they do. And that is, maybe I'm like Cain. Maybe I really am disfavored. Maybe I'm really not worth that much as well. Whatever I must do as a parent, and my children are you know, well in their 30s, I'm still responsible to find ways to say, I am glad you are in the world. I affirm you. And whatever you are dealing with, whatever problem you have, whether it's superficial or profound, I will work with you as your Father to show you that you are part of what God has brought into this world. And I am glad of it. And you know, what greater gift can we give our children than this? I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. When I, when our sons were born, I, I found something. I didn't, I didn't make it. I mean, children brought something into my life that I didn't have. Not just happiness and joy, but them 
They brought themselves into my life. There's, they, yeah, they brought themselves into my life. Uh, and so as their father, I had this responsibility to tell them, show them, affirm them that I'm glad they're alive and I'll do whatever it takes to affirm who they are. So, I will say this then in conclusion. The bells are ringing. That's like at school. You know, the bell is wrong. We've got to dismiss that. Um, even though it's a horrible story, a brother slaying a brother, and I couldn't think, frankly, anything worse than if my sons hated each other. They don't, by the way, and praise the Lord. Uh, what can we learn from this? I think God is teaching us. Even though it is difficult and taxing and demanding on us to do this. And it may be the easy way out to just walk away and say, I've had enough of this. I have to learn in my family relationship that I need to be accountable to them and to others. Secondly, I need to know and realize and bear that I am still their father and I have to find ways to affirm them. That is a way of somewhat healing the consequences of the curse that I, as a son of Adam and Eve, have brought into the world too. So I think God is teaching us hard lessons. Hard lessons. But they're the lessons that are needed east of Eden. I'll close this with a prayer. We love our children and grandchildren so much, God. There's such a joy, such a blessing, such a challenge, such a burden at times that we cannot bear it. Help us, O oh Lord, to be responsible, to be caring and affirming of who they are. And we praise you, Lord, for continuing to work with us to teach these great lessons that all of us need. And this I pray in the name of the Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.